Hello everyone, and welcome to the Quorum Podcast. This is where academic medicine meets remote, austere, and resource-limited areas. Welcome back to the program. This is Avery Kelly. This week, I am talking with Adam Ghent. Adam runs the Real First Aid uh, training company in, in UK, and he has been publishing articles on on first aid and, and how to be better at at what he does. Adam, it's been ages, mate, and I'm, I'm delighted to get you on. Welcome to the show. Thanks, Abrick. It is a real pleasure to be here. I've been following your work for so many years. Um, it's, as I said, it's, it's like uh, like the longest Tinder flirtation ever. Uh, but we're finally <laughs> making it happen, so uh, it's, it's really good to be here. Thanks, Abrick. Tell us about yourself. Who are you, what are you doing, and, and, and why are you doing so well at, at the basics? <laughs> well, um, why am I doing so well? I'm, I'm doing well. I'm doing all right. Um, so I own and run a training company in, based in West Wales, but we deliver training all over the world um, in predominantly first aid and responder level training. So up to you know your FPOS, FREC uh, sort of level training. Um, and I got into it through a very circuitous, sinuous route. It was never my plan when I was 16 in my career's guidance lessons to uh, to dream of uh, running a first aid training company. But but here we are. Um, and I suppose the real motivator was just to do it well. I'd, I'd had quite a lot of training, first aid training in the past. In a previous life, I was an outdoor instructor and I had to do a, a lot of first aid training regularly. Um, to do that and the majority of the training that we received just wasn't appropriate you know it's very office-based photocopied related first aid incidents that just didn't apply at all when you're mm. you know working with groups in the middle of nowhere hanging off hanging off the rock or or kayaking down a river so uh yeah I, I wanted to do it well and do it better so what got you into it you you didn't start off as as a medical professional well what what made you interested in in the the frack the wreck uh, the first aids? Well, I, I didn't start it at all. Uh, yeah, so I, I was an outdoor instructor uh, for a while, working predominantly with um, young people with challenged behaviour, and in and in that industry, there's there's a real apartheid. You know, you've got really good climbers, and you've got really good paddlers, and they, they tend very much not to mix. And I happened to be really bad at both of them um you know I, I wasn't a great climber and i wasn't a great paddler but i really enjoyed working in the outdoors with young people um and uh and i went on a first aid course it was one of the early rec courses the rescue emergency care courses oh before the remote emergency care you, you were doing the rescue emergency care nice yeah, 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 yes. And this this was the precursor. This and I was taught by a chap called um, Peter Harvey. Ah, uh, down nice. at Wild, down at Wilderness Expertise, and uh, and a lady called Sheena Brown. And this was about twenty years ago, at least twenty years ago. Um, and it was it was excellent. It, it was just so far away from any first aid training that I'd done. You know, very hands on, practical. Um, a uh, very pragmatic scenario-based training. Um, and yeah, it was great. So I, I looked into becoming a first-day trainer through the rec system. And I ran a couple of courses, uh, you know, for, for local activity centres. But it, it was never a career. It was more a bit of pocket money, yeah. you know, just running some outdoors-based first-aid courses. 
and then I left that that industry when I got married, had kids, needed a mortgage, needed to get a proper job, and uh, I, I became a slave to a corporate wage. And then in two thousand and eight, I was made redundant, and uh, I'd been with with the company I was working at for less than a year, mm. so there, there was no real entitlement. And I remember I was, uh, vividly, I was stood at the back of the building, I was smoking about 10 cigarettes <laughs> at once, you know, trying to just drag it all in in one go. Wow. And I think, you know, what am I going to do? You know, I've, I've got kids, I've got mortgage, I've got responsibility, I've lost my job. And uh, my phone rang and it was a colleague, a friend I'd wor- um, worked with in the army who, uh, who said to me, Adam, are you, are you, are you still doing first aid courses? And I said, yeah. He said, when are you available? I said, tomorrow? And he said, great. So I went around and, uh, you know, with, with six, six Rosassianis and, and some triangular bandages, and I delivered a perfectly reasonable two-day remote first aid course for uh, him and his team. And, uh, and I thought, this is it. This is going to get me out of a hole. This is going to get me out of a pickle. And I'll do this for six months, you know, until a proper <laughs> job turns up. But, but of course, this, this was the 2008 recession, and, you know, no proper job did turn up. And that was 15 years ago, and uh, I've, I've given up looking for a proper job. Just, <laughs> so it kind of, it very much grew out of necessity. Um, and then I, I generally thought that, it, that I'd, I'd be doing it, you know, for about six months, and I'd go back in, into the corporate work I was doing, and work, we got more work, and I thought I'd just be teaching outdoors guys you know climbers paddlers um people in the outdoor industry some remote first aid stuff but that in hindsight was rather naive because the outdoor industry in the uk is is a tiny tiny Mm. market and through word of mouth i ended up delivering courses for people who work in higher hazard industries sort of construction oil and gas and while it's, it's a world away from from the outdoor sports there's a lot of similarities in those high hazard environments Indeed. where you you've got a greater likelihood of injury or illness because of the nature of the activities you're undertaking the severity of that injury or illness is going to be greater um, because of the nature of the activities you're undertaking and probably the um, the geographical location you're operating in and you've got that uh, that consideration of extended care. You've got to look after a casualty for a longer period of time because you, know, you won't get an ambulance in 15 mm. minutes. And so whilst you know, the, uh, the scenario, the, oper- or the, the remit of operation is different to whether you're paddling down, down a river or you're um, looking after the safety of a film crew in the jungle or working on an oil rig, there are commonalities that conventional first aid training uh, just, just doesn't take into account. So you have created a, a job for yourself out of necessity, but that you you also you're, you're different. You so what is what is a catalyst for you? You you have a fire in the belly for this. I, I see mm. it, and I and and it's mm. you you did this yourself, was it? I mean, how did how did yeah. you go from uh, working in corporate to creating this niche of excellence? <laughs> that is extremely kind of you to say that um but you are right necessity is the mother of invention you know um and while i was an outdoor instructor i did think oh, it'd, be, it'd be kind of cool to to set up a first aid training company but when you've got a job and you've got a mortgage you've got kids and responsibilities the last thing you do is give up a job give up that security to, to do something new so i didn't do it when i wanted to and that that sort of necessity came from having to do something 
and you look at things differently when when there's a necessity when there's an obligation so i had to make this work and you make very frugal decisions um you know when you don't have that luxury of funding uh or or, or a, a second job in the background to keep the bills paid so the business aspect of it was was very purposeful it, it, it just had to work and god i i vividly i remember when i started doing this i would just be driving up and down the country back to back courses because i had bills to pay and so i, I see on on facebook and linkedin on forums people saying oh you know so i'm a, I'm a first aid trainer um i'm looking for work willing to travel 20 miles and you think you know man if you know if, if only all my work <laughs> within 20 miles you know it's it, it it just doesn't happen um and so the business aspect of it was really born out of necessity um but there was also there was possibly a bit of arrogance in wanting to do it differently because you know whether you look 25 years ago or you look now the uk does not need another first aid training company you know it is a saturated mm. market it's absolutely saturated and one of the reasons it's saturated is there's very few barriers to entry so if you do a three-day first aid at work course and then you do a five-day level three award in education training, you can now go and teach the course yeah. you've literally just qualified in, which is ridiculous. There's no other industry where that would happen. You know, if you had a GCSE in maths, you cut and do a three-day EAT course. You can't then teach GCSE mm. maths. Yeah, so there's surprisingly few barriers to entry. There's lots of people who want to do it because it looks like easy money. And if you're supporting a, uh, a pension or you're doing it as a bit of a hobby, then it's, it's pretty good beer money. But to, to make it a successful business, you have to sell your soul to working all hours God sends, answering the phone uh, whenever it rings um, and just being prepared. So, yes, yes, I can mm. do that because you have to, to, to make it work if you're going to do it full time. Um, yeah, I get quite angry about that, but, but doing it differently, doing it, I think is, is probably part of me, but wanting to be different and, and standing out because I can't compete against people with no massive marketing budgets. So I thought, how can I do it differently? Um, and I looked at how training is done. You know, if you look at your, your conventional training methodologies, and I thought well, it, it just doesn't work. It training people with no PowerPoint. Mm. Uh, and largely without trying not to get, um, what's the word I'm looking for, uh, evangelic about it, most lower end qualifications up to sort of level three, level four, really don't educate, in my opinion. I agree. I, I, I found similar problems. I, I was a, a rec instructor uh, for the remote uh, emergency care, um, also through training expertise. That was 08. Yeah, yeah. And I was running uh, or remote medicine Ireland at the time, and I was running these in Ireland. That's and right. I couldn't compete because these yokes would come in who were first aiders themselves, and they would run a course for super cheap because of themselves and 24 students. And I refused to do this. I, yeah. I, 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 one to four is is maximum for me i if if i have more than four people that i'm teaching you uh, you lose out on that ability to provide excellent care so i wasn't able to compete as a reconstructor so i, I had to uh, and i also kind of got angry as well and that that kind of cultivates a fire in the belly for you as well 
And, yeah. and so I, I said, I'm just not going to compete with these guys. And all most of my rec graduates were like, we want more, we want more. And so I started focusing on the rec four and then the, the remote EMT. And then my remote EMT graduates were like, we want more. So we started running paramedic courses there in, in Ireland. And, and that's, that's how I got past that hump. But I have to give yourself credit. You, you didn't, I, I gave up on the recs and, and went, went to more advanced. You didn't. And you won. You you are able to create excellence in a market where you have yolks out there who are, have two day rec training and turning right back around and teaching a, a yeah. rec to with one to twenty four ratio with a manky bandage and maybe one one yeah. defib. And how, how did you do that? It, it, it's, it's preposterous. Um, um, well, I've, I've made it work for me, but I haven't. I haven't really. Um, I don't think made a dent in the market because there will always be that competition and you know individuals can make it for themselves if they're willing to a go out and work really hard for it um because you to, to maintain your own standards uh, and think how can i do something differently what's what's going to people people coming back how am i going to get into places where other people can't get to because there will always be those people who will offer a substandard course for less and no, to be honest, most people who do the first aid training course, most people, by and large, the vast majority, do a first aid training course because they need to. It's it's an obligation. You know, first aid training for the vast majority is a legislative hoop that they've got to jump through. It, it's a box they need mm. to tick to satisfy employment legislation or licensing. So most people don't really want to be there. And if they do have to do something, they're going to do it as cheaply and as yeah, quickly as possible. Just get a piece of paper, so, you know, yeah. Yeah, sure. And so, you know, you'll, you'll also see not just your one day first aid courses that people are selling at 20 quid a pop online. Um, but, you know, you'll, you'll see regulated qualifications like FPOS or FREC that are being offered in three long days for 300 quid. And let's throw in pediatric first aid <laughs> and some hastily bastardized Myra course. And, you know, if, and if you're the unassuming consumer, things well i've got to do it anyway i'll get i'll get loads of loads of paper loads of bits of paper for 300 quid it'll take me three days i'm just going to smash that out and because you don't have much frame of reference you're happy with that yeah how was the course yeah it was great and what was good about it oh it was really cheap did it in three days and i got my fpos so you know changing that culture that is the challenge making making it desirable making it so people go oh i did this course it was mind-blowing it, I, I went there thinking I had to do it, and I came out and I learned loads. I didn't realize how much I could learn. That's the challenge. That, that's where I think the magic happens. And you you create an interest in them, so they they're they're there just to get the the tick on the box, and they're like, I'm actually yeah. in on this. I, I remember yeah, one yeah. of my first paramedic students, uh, Adrian Spillett, He he came in for a wreck. He's like, Ah, oh, I got to do this because I need my my uh, my cert for the. Um, mountain rescue or something like that and and he finished yeah. the wreck and he's like i want more i want more i want more and then he he wound up being in our first paramedic cohort in 2013 i think it was because he didn't know he liked medicine and then he got to see it done with a bit of passion and, and a bit of i don't know a, a applicability instead of death by powerpoint yeah. and, and I've, i remember teaching for other organizations where they just wanted me to do powerpoints for five days on a on a offshore medics course or something it's just mental it, it i couldn't do it and uh you i i see the yeah. same in yourself well we we have a 
a mutual friend, Ragnar, mm. uh, Ryan from British Rescue yeah. Group. And, uh, and it was a similar story. I met Ryan uh, a few years ago. He'd done his IHCD, his ambulance technician, but he needed FPOS for work. He was doing contract working in the Middle East. And um, and he came with his cause. So he'd done he'd done it before. We just needed the F post tick in the box, and uh, and we got on really well. And he really enjoyed it. And it was that kind of I didn't realise I like this. I didn't realise that I can do this. Um, and then from from me, he went and did his offshore medic. And then he, I think he went to you to do his paramedic. Mm. And now he's a physician's associate, nice. uh, working in hospitals. Nice. And you think that's incredible. Yeah. You know, that, it, it's that finding, finding something you like and selling it as something that's interesting rather than just, right, lads, gather around. We're going to smash this PowerPoint as quickly as possible, and then you're going to get your first aid certificate. So one other thing that really impresses me about yourself, mate, is your writing. So you are putting out articles that are publishable. I, I mean, you, you, you have references, and, and it's all science-based. We use some of them, uh, with your permission, on, on our field guide and, and, yeah, and it's on some of our lectures at the, at the degree level. You are writing content that is very much applicable for the, the, the paramedic, and you just keep pumping them out. I, just before uh, we, we chatted, I went again on your website, and you saw years' worth of scientific writing. Where, where did that come from? <laughs> um, well, sure. In school, I wasn't particularly academic. Um, I'm a little bit dyslexic, and I kind of was dragged through school um, and kicked through the education system. And I went back and did a PGCE when I was older. And then I realised I, that I, I needed to learn how to learn because school didn't teach me how to learn. School just threw knowledge at me, and most of it just fell just just slid off me like Teflon. So the teachers are throwing knowledge at me, and I'm like, yep, yeah, no, don't get it. And then when I went back to my PC when I was in my early 20s, it was something I wanted to do. So I had the intrinsic motivation, and that's when I first learned how to learn. And it's not at all how conventional secondary education is mm. set up for. Um, and that's when I learned how to properly reference, you know, articles and things. And how to, how to read an article, how to you know, access a scientific article. And especially if you don't find reading particularly easy. Um, that was a bit of a moment. And so then I was actually, I can extract. There's loads of information in this library that I can extract. I now know how to find it and what to look for. And that sort of taught me how to do that scientific research. But I had to go back as an, as an adult. It, it didn't come sort of innately from within as a child in, in the UK education system. One of the things, I don't know how, how family-friendly the show is, but I've got, it, I've got this phrase, and I use it on every course. And basically, people talk shit. <laughs> and they do it. They do it all the time. Mm. And what really grips me is the amount that is just repeated on every first aid course. And it's just not true. It, there, there's zero evidence behind it. You know, elevating limbs, you know, aspirin thinning the blood, um, you know, finding needles in pockets, you know, when you're doing a check for, da for damage. Um, and so that was like the early stuff that came to mind. I thought, why am I teaching people this? You know, early on, 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 on a basic for course, you know, I'm teaching because I was told it once. So there's no evidence that it happened. And then over the years, as the courses I've started running have become more advanced and the people I've been exposed to have been more questioning and more inquisitive, you find you've realised actually so much stuff that has been taught historically is just these historic anecdotes that are just handed down. 
um, through generations. And and as well as people talking shit, the, the 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 antithesis to that is you've got to have the right to be right. You know, you can't just say, no, that's wrong, um, because you could also be talking shit. You've got to have the right mm. to be right. And so when anyone now says, oh, well, you know, we do this now, I'm, oh, really? And in my either verbally or, or subconsciously, I'll be thinking, show me the evidence. You know, it's all, I, I, I get what you're saying, and it sounds plausible, but show me the evidence. Where does it actually say this takes place or this actually happens? And so when you've got a lot of these deeply entrenched um, heuristics, these, these just patterns of behavior that people do clinically and, and medically and, and also educationally, if you're going to counter that, you've got to counter it up with, you've got to counter it with evidence. You've got to say, look, we're not going to do this. And this is why, or you can do this. I know everyone says you can't, but actually you can. And this is why. Mm. So there's a, there's a lot of scientific push for, for well, for, for the college or, or everything we do, we want to do science-based. And But I have not seen that much science push for first aid and, and for the BLS level. And you are the, you're, you're, no, it. It you're, I mean, I don't, there's not much out there. And I, I would encourage you to publish these in, journals as well well that's very kind of it i but, but you're right there isn't there, there's none you know the whole thing about rhabdomyelosis and the current first aid guidance in the uk is still do not remove trapped casualties if they've been trapped for more than 15 minutes there is no evidence on the face of the earth that rhabdomyelosis develops in 15 minutes none at all and there's no evidence to where that advice came mm. from but it's still taught, you know, that the first aid at work course was written in 1981 in the advent of the health and safety first aid at, uh, at work legislation. So it's 42, nearly 43 mm. years old, and, we're, and people are still promoting this do not release if they've been trapped for more than 15 minutes with no evidence yeah. behind it. No other country has a 15 minute rule. And even in the UK, doctors, nurses and paramedics don't follow this 15 minutes. So why are we teaching people this? You know, it makes zero That's sense. But no one's challenging it. And it's partly because the barriers to entry are so low. So when you've done your three-day physical work course and you've done your AET and now you're teaching it, what are you going to teach people? When are you going to teach people what you tell mm. Because it makes, it makes complete sense. But yeah, the articles, I do enjoy writing the articles, but they are, they're, they're incredibly time-consuming. So you'll know when business is good because I'm not putting anything <laughs> out because I'm too busy. And if you see a sudden flurry of articles and social media posts, that's because I'm at home um, finishing like, 12 half finished uh, <laughs> articles I've been working on for the last three years. Fair one. I, I, I know the challenges of that. It might, my challenge to myself is every Wednesday to put out something on LinkedIn that has, has good science backing. And sometimes, uh, like, like this week, I was in, in, in London uh, for a friend graduating. Uh, and it, yeah, I didn't have a chance. But yeah, the challenge is do 52 a year. It's mental. It's tough. And meanwhile, yeah. I'm doing all the other things that I do as a Dean Emeritus, but the, you you are definitely the shining light when it comes to looking at this at the BLS level. And and the other thing is you're, you're writing, and I imagine you're teaching as well. I'm sorry I haven't actually seen you in front of the classroom. It must be amazing. But what you can do is find a, a difficult topic, such as rhabdomyolysis, and you're explaining this to somebody with a two-day first aid course, and, and they're getting it. Yeah. And so that being able to have complex topics and, and complex thoughts and, and get it down to the basic level, it, it's really rare to find. And, and with, with my special forces background, we, we had this saying, what makes special forces special? And it's not jumping out of airplane. It's not 
uh, like my team sergeant jumped a tactical nuke once. I mean, the, some of the, the jumping means like he jumped out of aircraft with a tactical nuke just because the Department of Energy were like, uh, can we jump a tactical nuke? And so he, I, we didn't get to do that, but he he got picked for it. I mean, this is really wazoo yeah. stuff. And it, But Special Forces yeah. is not about that. Special Forces is knowing the basics well. And we're, we're the best yeah. because we have immediate action drills. We can do that blindfolded. We, we can do an improvised bandage. We, we know, it, and it's, it's the stuff that you're teaching is what we should know. Everyone should know really, really well. Yes. Yeah, I, I wholly agree with you. And I think that is it's interesting because I'm known for like doing the first aid stuff. But as a medic, I'm not a great medic. You know, I'm, a doctor once called me shoddy. I've, I've probably killed quite a few casualties. You know, I'm, I'm not I'm not a great medic, but that's kind of what I'm known as because that's the industry I'm in. I'm a trainer, and that is what pays my bills. And they're completely separate fields. They're completely mm. separate. And another massive bone of contention I have is that they're not seen as separate. There's this, well, okay, you're a good medic, so you must be a good trainer. And training is is completely different. You've got to, as you just explained, you've got to take something that's really complex and then distill it without losing too much credibility to make it accessible and digestible for other people to understand. And then if they want to know more, you've got to have that ability to go deeper into the science if they really want it. And if you can make it engaging and interesting, then well, that's just bonus points. And that's not being a medic. Um, and I, I kind of like use the analogy quite often of a football coach and so I know nothing about football by the way so don't pick me up don't don't give me any any, any pop quiz but if you think about football coaches and if you were to ask someone to name um, an excellent football coach uh, you know a lot of people might say someone like Jurgen Klopp I don't know if he's any good but a lot of people have said that to me in the past and he's apparently an amazing football coach was your manager I can't remember Um, either way coach or manager one or two either way was he was he a spectacular football player in his time no he won't because he what he's doing now is different to playing football so he's not employed on the basis of his ability to play football he's, he's employed in his ability in his ability to manage and motivate and get the most out of other people so they're completely separate disciplines and you find people who've got the brain the size of a planet and they know this stuff inside out and they can't they just can't get it across to lay people mm. because they're operating at another level and then they can't kind of distill it they can't make access and you see jobs advertised on you know, platforms like LinkedIn uh, for clinical educators and it'll be something like you now they must have five years of clinical practice there must be at least paramedic preferably nurse ideally doctor no f band um, they must have ptls amls uh, they must have you know this that and the other and then at the end it'll say must have a minimum of, of uh, level three award in education training so they're taking on trainers and the role is a trainer but they're employing on the minimum mm. training qualification required. Level three, yeah. Which I think is odd, because if you want to pay someone a lot of money to be a good tra- who's a good trainer, mm. then surely you should be employing them on their training ability, not their subject matter ability. Does that oh, it does. Like being a good medic does not make you a good faculty. And I've, I've sacked faculty yeah, yeah, fully. mid-sentence because they were rubbish. And so yeah. It, <laughs> yeah. You, you, you have to, yeah, you have to be able to be good at, medicine and you have to be good at teaching and very few have that very few have that yeah 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 um i i've written about the holy trinity that i look for because we, we've got a couple of of, uh, of freelance staff our associate trainers and we don't have many but for a couple of reasons um but i look for the holy trinity and firstly 
you've got to actually have done it. You, know, you can't be a theorist. You must have got your hands dirty on some casualties. You don't have to be an open heart surgeon, um, but you must have had some exposure to dealing with casualties. So you can't just be a theorist. You know, you've done the course, you've narrow qualified, and now you're going to repeat the course. So you've got to have some hands-on experience. You've also got to be an exceptional trainer because that's really what we're being paid for. You know, we're in the training industry. We're not on the, we're not on the healthcare provision industry. And you've got to not be a dick. <laughs> and it's incredibly difficult to find all three because I know some really good medics who are just leagues ahead of me. You know, just they're doing mind-blowing stuff clinically, but they can't teach to save their life, and that's by their own admission. Mm. And I know some really good trainers, um, but I just I couldn't put them in front of a client. You know, right. they'd be like a social hand grenade. And finding all three is incredibly difficult to do. It, but that's that's what they're they're the unicorns we're all chasing. It definitely is. And in, in trying to get enough of those like we have seventeen faculty and it's it's taken me ten years to to get to herd all of these cats yeah. into one room because of yeah, yeah. as you say, the holy trinity. They must be all three. Yeah, absolutely. But if you, know, if you went on social media and said, look, I need a new faculty, you would easily have 50 applicants by the afternoon. Mm. Yeah. But how many would you actually really be confident to put in front of a client? Yeah. You know, it thins out. Um, and interestingly, the, the majority of the associate trainers that we use, the majority of them aren't paramedics because we don't need someone who's clinically excellent we don't need nursing doctors we need really good trainers and so the majority of them actually have an outdoor instructor background mm. um because that's what we're employing and that's that's what we want we want people and because if, if you can motivate a group of cold wet miserable teenagers on the side of a hill who've got no interest in navigating or how a compass works you know if you can motivate in that classroom if you can enthuse and engage then there should be no reason why you can't motivate a group of adults in a relatively comfortable training environment mm. Um, yeah, that that for us is is where the magic happened. It's the engagement, and it, rather than the uh, you know your clinical qualification. So, Adam, there, there's one question I've been really wanting to ask, and I, I saved it for the last because I imagine it's going to uh, we're, we're going to bounce this back and forth a bit. But you teach prolonged field care, and you teach it at yeah. the BLS level, which yeah. is profound. It's it's so. I, w- I would love to pick your brains and, and hear okay. your concepts on PFC for first aiders. Okay, that is interesting. Um, yeah, uh, it's it's a bespoke course that we've written for BLS. It's kind of like you know, your, um, your, your prolonged field care for first aiders, you know, not for um, healthcare professionals. And they are completely separate beasts. And I've, I've had a bit of incoming flack for this. And, you know, if you, if you put anything, anything on the internet, um, you will, you, you've got to expect incoming flack of you because oh, well, no, you're not what you're not teaching prolonged field care. Prolonged field care is nursing. You know, it requires catheterization and medication. So, well, that is one aspect of prolonged field care. But if you are a first aider and you have a casualty and help is hours or days away, well, you still have to provide field care for a prolonged period of time. It's just a different aspect of it. Um, so, it's really what can we? Well, first is what we need to consider. You know, what is prolonged field care? What, what are the challenges going to be? And there's a lot of crossover between the well, the prolonged field care um, website. You know, that, that really gets into the weeds of, you know, the pharmacology and the nursing aspect of it, you know. Mm. Um, and then the stuff that you've done is, is, is pioneering stuff that's never really been considered. 
But yes, yeah, so we've got to look at what is the context, what are the issues of looking after a casualty? And it's not glamorous and it's not sexy and it's not that instant gratification of sticking on chest seals and tourniquets and needle decompression. It's some of it is mundane and it's, it's housekeeping, mm. it's basic nursing skills, things like this. And so we uh, we have our own methodology that that attempts to provide some grounding for non-healthcare professionals to manage a casualty for an extended period of time, typically in a, in a remote environment. There absolutely is a need for prolonged field care at a BLS level when you're, anytime you're working or playing off the beam path. So we've developed this course and we principally deliver it to discrete groups because of the specialist nature of it. It's, it's kind of difficult getting people to agree on, on the same date and then committing to it and then some people drop out. So. We, currently, we're only offering it to discrete groups, um, people who work further afield. And so the first phase of the training is understanding the epidemiology of injuries and illnesses when we're working or, or playing abroad. And when people do their sort of their initial risk assessment, it's always very emotional. Um, and, you know, we think of things like, you know, terrorist attacks and IDs and snake bites mm. when actually... You know, the, the reality of working or playing abroad is it's going to be vomiting and diarrhea. Mm. It's, it's going to be sunburn and things like this. Yeah. And it's putting things into perspective. So what are they really preparing for? And it's usually not at all what people expect. So we go into the epidemiology of the things people are likely to have to encounter. Then we have our methodology. So you are using sheep vomit currently, is that right? Yeah, Hitman and sheep vomit. And you're using the AFIT Arse mm. as a mnemonic. Well, I, have, I don't think I've updated the website because I don't want, I haven't put our protocol online yet, but I'm willing to share right. it with you. Um, so it's a methodology. So yeah, so AFIT Arse, um, uh, you shared um, on the your remote medic island years ago. Yep. And I, I, th- I think it's great. And I think yep. it's good at the for the BLS level. I think there's still a lot you can take from it. Mm. Um, but I've kind of nuanced it. And also, it had to begin with a H. I couldn't have it beginning with an A, because after yeah. our G, get help, then you're into something. That's why we changed. Yeah. Um, so uh, we've developed hero time. Oh. I know, right? So you do your D-R-A-B-C-E-F-G. G is get help. And then while you're waiting for help, well, now it's hero time. And uh, this is when you've got to step up. So H is hygiene, and uh, this is this is not exciting. It's not glamorous. It's not tactical or ninja, but it, it's the the nursing care side of looking after casualties. Um, e is for elevation, and we look at different positioning. I'm predominantly the conscious casualty has got to adopt the most comfortable position, but we have a chat around how different positioning can affect, um, you know, the physiology, blood pressure, things like this. Um, mm. And also, you know, what, what are the myths around it? Um, R is for rehydration, uh, so principally oral, um, but we talk about proctoclysis. O is our observations and records, so your history taking, your monitoring, trending vital signs. T is testing and diagnostics, so we look at rapid diagnostic tests. We look at what other diagnostics we can bring, so things like portable ECG machines. Good. Uh, blood testing, Eldon cards, that sort of stuff. And then we'll have a conversation about telemedicine because, you know, you, you do not need to be able to interpret everything. You do not need to diagnose. You just need to collect the data and then tell someone else about it. 
you know indeed so you know your analysis i think is super cool your analysis i mean pissing on a stick is not at all sexy but you know weighing on a stick is is not tactical but getting someone to win a stick and just holding it up against the uh, the diagnostic table and say, yeah, yeah, I think you've got a UTI. You know, that, I think that mm. ability is super cool. Um, and it is easily within, you know, the BLS skill set. If you can read, definitely, then you can, then you can do that. So that's our testing and diagnostics, getting as, as much information as we can. And even if you can't interpret it, just pass the information on to somebody who can. I is for infection. M is for medication. There's a lot of myths and legend about what we can and can't do. And actually, even within the UK, which is pretty litigious society, you can do an awful lot with medication. Um, mm. And then E is environmental issues. So that's our framework. And then towards the end of the course, we go into specific skills, a lot of which would have been covered on, on a decent remote first aid course, but things like the management of ankle injuries, management of diarrhea, clearing a C-spine, um, wound cleaning and closure, when you should, when you shouldn't. Uh, using SAM splints, you see SAM splints being used all the time, but you also see, see them being used terribly all the time. Mm. And it, using a SAM splint effectively is a bit like a GCSE engineering project. When they work, they work incredibly well, but just taping a flat bit of aluminiumized foam yeah, it irks good. me when I see that. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> makes makes my right eye go twitchy. Yeah, um, yeah so so that's really my take on prolonged field care. I think there's a, there's a significance, there's a reason that whether we should have that skill set when we work abroad, but I don't think anyone needs to be precious about who should be teaching it, who should be attending these courses. If you can add value, if you can make someone's life better, and you know you're not breaking any laws, why would you not want to help someone? Indeed. I, I imagine the lads who's giving out to you about offering PFC at the BLS level, they, they just don't grasp the concept. So the, the majority of prolonged field care is BLS nursing skills. Yeah, and yeah, I, 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 would, I would encourage you to, to continue doing this. And I, I would say that I'm a critical care paramedic and I, fo- I, you know, I focus on all the cool 72 drugs that I can do. And, but what, what am I lacking? I am lacking on the BLS nursing skills, the, the keeping them comfortable, the turning them, the, the massage. The, the, yeah, so yeah. These, are, these are things that must be taught. That's it. And you know, the interesting thing, you know, you said you're a critical care paramedic. Well, critical is cool and paramedic is cool. Why isn't care cool? Mm. You know, it's like everyone's yeah. be that, 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 that ninja, but, you know, if wanting to make someone's life more tolerable, more bearable you know being able to soft skills like just putting your arm around someone's shoulder and saying do you know what mate everything's going to be fine not being able not being afraid to hold someone's hand and just talk to them you know they're really cool skills when they're done well and you only appreciate what they're cool when you're the one who's in pain or is utterly miserable and someone's (laughs) doing it to you so how long is your your pfc exercise that you're doing uh, it is delivered over two days with uh, and throughout the course each candidate has got a casualty so they meet the casualty who is uh, actually called Alex uh, one of our full-size mannequins so Alex is the casualty um, and they meet Alex on the morning of day one and they're given a bit of a script so this is Alex and each candidate has got a different history so Alex has been traveling in Central Africa that, that's the same for everyone but Alex has got this problem or this problem and this is their, their presenting problem and each candidate's got a different one and then as the course goes on they're able to go back and alex lives in a tent for the whole two days 
normal man tent and they're able to go back whenever they want and ask Alex some questions. So when we've just done urinalysis or we've just done ECG or or whatnot, they'll go, oh, I'm just going to go and you know, do an ECG on Alex or I'm just going to go and ask Alex to wheel on a stick or oh, I'm just going to go and uh, just do a malaria um, RDT. So they go back to Alex over the two days at random points, typically after we've just highlighted this might be something you, you could you could do. And then they build up this picture and then by the end of the two days, they say, right, this is what I think they've got. I've ruled this out because I've ruled this in because I'm going to go with that. And we say, yes, yeah, you're absolutely right. It is malaria or it is a UTI um, or it is uh, sepsis or you're wrong. Go back and think about it. You know, what, what's led you to that? Where might you be getting confused? So they've got that going on in the background while they're also doing the, uh, the lectures and the skill session. That's brilliant. That's a, a really clever way of, of getting them to understand the, the prolonged, the longitudity, the amount of time you're going to have to deal with them. Uh, when, when I started doing, doing it, and it, and it was very kind of organic. It's, we're on like iteration seven. I've rewritten the course manual eight times now. <laughs> um, and I've been threatening to put it into print. It was meant to be, I wanted to get it out for Christmas this year. As you should. Um, <laughs> well, I'll send you, I'll send you an advanced copy and you can rip it to pieces. Absolutely. It looks like, it looks like I'm now going to say Christmas next year, but you know, like, <laughs> that's, you should say, oh yeah, I, I, I'm, I'm writing a book. Oh really? Neither am I. You know, yeah. <laughs> they, they never get finished. Yeah, um, we're in the same boat with a third edition. We're just not getting to it at all. Yeah, yeah. So uh, where can people find you? So if, if, if someone's interested in a PFC course focusing on yeah. BLS skills, yeah. where can they find you? Uh, you can find us online, uh, which is realfirstaidalloneword.co.uk. Um, even if you do not um, want to book a course with us, you don't want to send us any money, we've got a shop online, you can buy some stickers and med kit. Even if you don't give us a penny, there is a whole section of articles that we keep updated, they're referenced and they're out there for the greater good. Um, if there's any article that people think are missing, Adam, you haven't written, I know for a fact I haven't written an article on head injury which is a significant no topic, um, mm. but there isn't an article on head injury yet. So if you're looking at thinking, Adam, you need to write an article for this, then email us at info at realfirstaid.co.uk. You can also find us on Instagram, uh, Real First Aid, all one word, Facebook, LinkedIn, Twitter, Google+, OnlyFans. <laughs> it's only a matter of time. <laughs> it's only a matter of time. Yeah. I, I encourage anyone listening to go through your the plethora of published articles you have that are all referenced and scientific-based. I, I refer to them, uh, and we use some of your content on our degree programs. And definitely reach out to Adam if you have any questions on, on what he's doing. Adam, it's brilliant to have you here, and we've got to get you down to Maltimate. I Joe, I need a tan. I need to do some learning in, <laughs> in a sunny country. 2024 is going to be the year. Let's get you down. Anyway, thanks for joining the show, and we look forward to seeing what you can do. Thanks, Eric. It's been a pleasure. This has been a presentation from the College of Remote and Offshore Medicine. If you would like to earn CPD credits for this podcast, you can join the Council of Members. Being a member of the college gives you free CPD credit, free access to our virtual field guide, and discounts on our e-learning courses. You can join the team on our college website at quorum.edu.mt.